This morning we're going to be in Revelation 3. We're going to look at the Church of Philadelphia. And lest you mock me, like my family likes to mock me once in a while, because for some reason I grew up saying Philadelphia, and that comes out a lot. I, I didn't know until maybe 15 years ago that it was Philadelphia. And so I often say Thea. So just leave me alone in my, my stupidity. And let me be ignorant, but uh, hopefully you'll give, be patient with me if it comes out the wrong way this morning. Um, I have been practicing just in front of the mirror. No, I haven't been. But uh, if you hear Thea, just chalk it up to being from Colorado and we're all short on oxygen out there. And, uh, and Philadelphia is how you pronounce it. But we're going to be looking at verses 7, Acts, uh, Acts, Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13 this morning. It's six verses. Um, I'm going to say up front, and I'll say a little bit here in a moment as well, but I'm going to say up front that we are not going to talk about every little aspect of this church this morning because there is not time. There, this, this particular letter to the church in Philadelphia is just packed with ideas and theological concepts that we're not going to be able to deal with at all this morning. And um, so I've chosen to focus on one thing, but um, uh, uh, hopefully that one thing God will use in our lives this morning to teach us. Beginning of verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and that yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down for my God out of heaven and my own new name. Who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of our Lord. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Located about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, the city of Philadelphia, Philadelphia, I already did it, was, uh, was located in a river basin. And to the north was a set of a ridge of hills, probably what they might have called mountains, some of them went up about a thousand feet and to the south of them 
was another ridge of mountains. So they existed down in this valley with a pretty calm tributary that ran through that valley area. We really don't know much about its founding. I talked about one of the other cities and I said that its, that its founding and its original history was very obscure. Uh, Philadelphia kind of puts them to shame. There's just not much that we know about when they were founded. Um, uh, we know who founded them. We know exactly when they were founded. What we don't know is much of their early history. And that's because the, 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 the current city of Philadelphia, which has a different name now in, under Turkish rule, um, the, the current modern city sits right on top of the original city. Uh, all these other cities, the modern city sits off a little bit from the original city and the original mound of the city, so they can do archaeology in that area with Philadelphia and now its new name. Um, it sits right on top of the old city, so they can't do much archaeology, so they don't know a lot about the history of this town. But what historical evidence we have tells us it was founded by a local king of the region, around 189 BC, who named it after his brother. And um, if you have interest, it, it's a fascinating story about the two brothers, um, how they interacted and the loyalty and love that they had for each other. And um, the one brother who was the younger one, his name uh, was, was, a, was a version of Philadelphia and that was where the name of the city came from. Uh, it, it seems, from what we can gather from history, that a primary reason for its founding was that the Greeks had come into the area and the king of that region was um, uh, friendly with the Greek uh, uh, kings, uh, that uh, um, Alexander's sons, and he was friendly with them. And uh, they decided to found the city as kind of a center for Greek culture. And, uh, and so Philadelphia became what some call a missionary city, but it was a place where people went out of it to teach other people in the region about the Greek culture and to spread it. The history of the city picks up quite a bit in AD 17, and that's because in that year there was a massive earthquake that went through the region and even today, we see in the news when Turkey has earthquakes, it's, it's a very active area. And when they have earthquakes, they're massive earthquakes. And the one that came through in AD 17 wiped out Philadelphia completely. I mean, there was just nothing left but rubble. Some of the other cities that we've talked about were affected by the earthquake and there was damage. There was one other city that had a lot of damage, but Philadelphia had nothing left. It was just rubble upon rubble. And as they reached out for help, the, uh, one of the, the emperor of that time actually took a liking to the city and sent a lot of relief aid to try and rebuild the city. They named the city, they renamed the city to include that emperor's name. Later on in the future, there was another uh, emperor uh, from the Flavia or Flavia family that that showed a lot of interest in the city and gave them a lot of financial support and help to rebuild many years later. 
and the city changed its name again to include that emperor's name. Um, Philadelphia was its main name, but it, its name was changed often. It kind of gives you a little bit of a hint to when Jesus says, I will give you a new name later on, that there's one final name waiting for you. But Philadelphia, Philadelphia was rocked by powerful aftershocks after the original earthquake. It sat right near the epicenter of the earthquake. And they say for sure for months, and there seems to be some evidence that actually for years, uh, they would have these huge aftershocks. So they were trying to build the city and they'd start to get a portion of the walls up and one of those aftershocks would hit and just destroy the walls again. And any houses they tried to build inside the city would collapse again. So over time, the citizens of Philadelphia moved out of what had been the city center and began to live on the plain surrounding what was the city and they farmed that land. So there, it reached a point from about 17 AD, they say until maybe mid thirties that uh, the city was uninhabited. The people just lived out in the open in uh, the tents that they had or makeshift huts. They mostly lived in tents because if they built anything being where they were, it would just collapse when the aftershocks would go through. So it was a very um, unsafe place to live to a, to a certain extent, but the people who lived there were exposed. They lived in an exposed area not behind city walls of any kind, and they were just vulnerable to every kind of predator that came by, whether that was a human predator or an animal predator. You know, the thought that came to my mind as I read about them was why would anyone want to stay there? Why would anybody want to live in an area like that? And then I thought of Northern California, <laughs> uh, where they uh, the city of San Francisco, if you read their history in, in the early 1900s, most of San Francisco was completely leveled by an earthquake. There was hardly anything left standing, and they just rebuilt the city right on top of it. So if you remember the big, the big earthquake of, I think it was 1989 during the World Series game, for you sports fans, you might remember that right in the middle of the World Series game that earthquake hit. Um, you know, if they'd have been smart the first time around, they would not have rebuilt right there. But they did. And there's reasons why people do that. There's reasons why um, people live in what we call Tornado Alley in the United States. Uh, there's reasons why people live in the snow belt of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which I will never understand. There's no good reason to be up there. But they try to farm up in some of those areas. Uh, it's sand, and they try to farm in the middle of that. Um, but, you know, as I was thinking about it, just like the people who rebuild their houses in Florida that get whacked by hurricanes on a regular basis, you guys that should not be moving to Florida someday, there's, there's perceived advantages, and there are no advantages to Florida, just so you know, but they have perceived in their sinfulness, they have perceived ideas about what's good about Florida. And uh, they just keep rebuilding in those places. And that is what happened with Philadelphia. There, there are perceived advantages to living in Northern California, in the tornado alley of, uh, of the United States, and in um, 
that sin-cursed place called Florida. Just, you know, if you need to do any counseling, if you feel a need to counsel, you need to talk to John and Sandy about their sinful plans someday, and uh, they just want to indulge themselves in sun. So you just, I'll just put that out for you. You can pray for them about that. Uh, but seriously, there's advantages to those places, and that's why people want to live there. And the advantage for Philadelphia in that region was that it was, this won't sound advantageous at first, but it was a highly volcanic area. And just to the north on the other side of those mountains was an area that was referred to as the burned area. And it was actually lava flows that had come in and uh, at that point there wasn't active lava flowing, but it was, um, there was the, the hardened lava uh, the lava flows had hardened off, but there were still places where you had like thermal springs and, and gases coming up on that area. Nothing grew there. But if you crossed those mountains there to the north and came into that river basin, that was, that was soil that was full of volcanic ash. And it was very fertile for vineyards. And so Philadelphia became one of the major wine-producing areas of that uh, Western Asia. It would be very similar to California, Northern California, where you have Napa Valley. Napa Valley is well known in the United States as one of the primary wine-producing places, and the reason is because of all the volcanic ash. I never knew that until one year we took a family vacation up to California. And we, we just decided to drive through Napa Valley because we were going that way and we'd always heard how beautiful it was. And we took this side road, back road, dirt road that took us in the middle of nowhere. And we're standing in this area just looking around and we weren't seeing a whole lot of vineyards, but off to all around us was this like ring of low mountain hills all around. And we're standing there. And there's one of those historical markers, you know? So we went over to read the historical marker only to find out that we were standing in the center of a, center of a volcanic crater. And, and we all just decided maybe this wasn't a good place to hang out. And we got in the car and we left. But that area, it, the soil has a lot of volcanic ash, which really lends itself well to growing grapes, and the same was for Philadelphia. Philadelphia also was located at the intersection of two major trade routes. It actually, the, there was one that came from the northeast, and there was one that came from the west, and right before you got to the city of Philadelphia, those two roads joined together and went right through Philadelphia and then on to the east. So everything flowing to the west went through them, everything flowing from the north and the uh, west, uh, going back to the east and going to the south, came through Philadelphia. So they were at the intersection of those two major trade routes, and some historical records refer to Philadelphia as the open door to the west, the gateway to the west. Growing up in Colorado, Denver was considered the gateway to the West. They referred to it as that way, and that's what Philadelphia was in their time. So there were advantages to living there. There was just this one real big disadvantage of earthquakes that constantly wiped you out. Religious life in the city was similar to the other cities in the area, where pagan worship was the norm. 
and much of it centered on the Roman imperial cult. In, in Philadelphia, there wasn't as much of a main god or goddess out there other than the imperial cult, the, the worship of the emperor. And they were so tied into that that that's why, uh, and so promoted it, that's why the emperors helped to fund their rebuilding and became very strong allies of the city of Philadelphia. Also, as far as the religious life of the city went, it appears that there was a large concentration of Jews because Jesus refers to the synagogue there, which seems to be a very powerful one, and it's like the one in Smyrna, and it was hostile to the Christians. Uh, the language here, if it sounds familiar, about the synagogue of Satan, and they say they are Jews and are not, but lie, you get almost the exact same language from Jesus about the synagogue in uh, Smyrna. So, so there seems to be a large enough population and they ha seem to have power and they seem to be persecuting this church. By the way, I mentioned this at the very beginning uh, of these letters. You can group these letters together. The first and the last, Ephesus and Laodicea, are churches that have major spiritual problems. Smyrna and Philadelphia the second to the last and the second, Smyrna being the second letter um, and uh, Philadelphia being the second to the last letter are both letters where there is no rebuke of the church. For both of those churches, there's no, there's no rebuke. God does not, Jesus does not say anything negative, but they both have the synagogue of Satan. He refers to that. Letters three, four, and five in the middle, those three that we've just gone through all have the same problem to some degree or another of sexual immorality as the main issue in the church. So, so you see this interesting grouping if you think about the letters in that way. And we'll talk about Laodicea um, next Sunday. But there is this Jewish, powerful Jewish group in the city that seemed to be persecuting the Christians. And once again, Jesus identifies them as a place of worship intended to promote God. That's the intent of a synagogue. And it's supposed to be a place where people are encouraged to wait for the Messiah. And yet, in fact, this place was a place that was dedicated to the worship of Satan. And I would say, if you want to be dedicated to the worship of Satan, the place you start is to deny Jesus as the promised one. That's, that is that is the beginning point of the worship of Satan. Denying Jesus is the promised one. Denying that Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world through his death. And to be a place where you worship Satan is to reject God the Father's offer of salvation and to actively pursue the agenda of the serpent. You don't have to be setting up an idol of Satan and worshiping it to be a synagogue of Satan or a church of Satan. All you have to do is deny Jesus, that he is the suffering savior who takes away the sin of the world. In the midst of all these false religions, it's just really interesting to me. My, my heart really resonated with Philadelphia and I hope that comes out here in a little while. And by the way, it is the city of brotherly love but we're not gonna talk about all the great relationship that they had between each other in this church as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Um, I taught someone yesterday who doesn't attend here, but they watch the live stream every week, was talking about um, uh, looking forward to hearing about the relationships and that kind of thing in the church. They were telling me that. And I said, you know, it is, you do think it's that way and it's what you would expect when you come to that church with that name. But they didn't get their name again because they were a church with a lot of love for each other in it, which I think they were. But actually, that name came from people who didn't know Christ. And, uh, and so Jesus isn't going to talk about their love for each other and their relationships in this church. It's going to be something that is somewhat unexpected. But in the midst of all these false religions and the persecution of the Jews, God had chosen to, to plant the seed of the gospel, which led to the founding of this church in Philadelphia. We don't often make this connection, but there's a place uh, where Paul says that he, if you remember this, the Apostle Paul asked the people to pray for him because he wants to go to Macedonia. He wants to take the gospel to Macedonia. And he says that the Holy Spirit prevented them from going, which has always been an interesting thing to me, that here are these people in Macedonia who need to hear the gospel, and God says to Paul, not yet. You're not allowed to go yet. You're not allowed to take the gospel to them yet. I have a hard time wrapping my head around that one. But there comes a day where Paul gets a Macedonian call and it's time for him to go to Macedonia. And as we look at these seven churches, we are in Macedonia. That is part of Macedonia. And so God had opened the door and we don't know who was the first to preach the gospel in this city. Whether it was Paul or, or someone coming back from uh, Pentecost and, and what they had seen and heard and their trust in Christ. But somewhere along the line, God planted that seed of the gospel in this town and that led to the founding of the Church of Philadelphia. And now, decades later, Jesus is speaking to this church. And as I've said about some of the other churches we've learned about, I doubt that we or most Americans today, if we went to visit Philadelphia and we went to, to meet the Christians in Philadelphia and we set it up, you know, that we're on vacation in the region and let's go visit the church of Philadelphia. Just say we could do that in that time. Of course, America didn't exist back then, although there might be some people who think it did, but it didn't exist quite yet. And in, in, uh, uh, this would have been 90, 80, 90. But I doubt that if we would have visited this church, we would have been impressed. We wouldn't have seen a nice building. We wouldn't have seen a large crowd what we would have seen was a small group of people, a very small group of people worshiping Jesus in the middle of a lot of persecution. Jesus refers to this church as having a little 
power. I know that you have but little power. That's Jesus' words to them. He's not commending the multi-campus church of 10,000 people. He's not commending Saddleback Baptist Church in California with 30,000 people. He's commending a church that he personally describes as having little power. This was a small church. Literally, to translate little power is to use the term weak. It's a small church. It's a weak church. And I guarantee you, it was a church where it didn't seem that big things were happening. And if we would have visited that church with our preconceived notions about what a successful church is today, we probably would have gone away going, wow, what a bunch of losers. They they don't even have a building to meet in. And there's hardly any of them. They must have a really lousy pastor that they aren't doing anything and they aren't accomplishing anything. Remember Ephesus? I mean, that place, wow. Doctrine, the doctrine was just incredible that was taught there. And and you could tell it was somebody important. There was John, man. There was John the the Apostle. He's the pastor there. And man, that, that place, that... Yeah, that, they really know their stuff there. And then we walk in the doors or into the presence of, because we don't even know they had a covered meeting place, into the presence of these few believers and say, hmm, well, God bless their nice little souls. They're trying hard. But Jesus doesn't condemn them for being small. He doesn't look at this church and say, oh, you know, if you guys would work a little harder, it'd be a whole lot better. If you guys would do this or that, you know, Jesus says, I know you have little power. You're small, you're weak. But Jesus doesn't look at his people the same way that we have a tendency to look at his people. Jesus doesn't look at his local body expression of himself the way we look at it. He doesn't evaluate them the way we evaluate. He doesn't see his bride the way we see our bride. Jesus actually commends them. And the fact is that even though this was a small church, I hope you're picking up on my theme this morning, a small, weak church. Even though it was a small place, a small group, there were good things actually happening in this group of believers. Jesus said these were people who had kept his teachings And in spite of whatever else was going on in their lives, they had not denied his name. 
In spite of the pressure of the imperial cult to worship Caesar, in spite of the pressure of some of them being Jews who had been kicked out of the synagogue and ostracized from their family, these were people who Jesus says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This church, small and seemingly weak from a human perspective and even from Jesus' perspective, was pursuing faithful obedience to their king and patiently enduring trials. We find that later on in some of the verses. They had patiently endured trials in kingdom advanced and they had fully identified with the one who had saved them from their sin. They loved Jesus. How wonderful to be a part of a church, no matter how small, no matter how weak, where the people loved Jesus. And the people had no problem identifying with Jesus. They loved Jesus, and according to verse 9, he loved them. He makes this strange statement about the Jews there. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What an image. There's going to come a day when I'm going to bring them all in front of you and I'm going to have them bow down before you and they're going to acknowledge you were right and they were wrong and they are going to know the love that I've had for you. I don't have time to get into it. It's a very interesting turn of events because in the Old Testament, there are all these statements about how the Gentiles are going to come and bow at the feet of God's people. And it appears that those prophecies are looking forward to a day when God's people are not necessarily Jews and the people who call themselves are Jews are actually identified as Gentiles by God. But the most significant thing here is he says, they will know, they will learn that I have loved you. I've talked about this before, and I probably talked about this too much, but I want to talk again this morning about the fact that God is not often impressed with what impresses us. And God doesn't sit back and look at a church of a thousand people and say, wow, now that place. Move them up the board, Gabriel. They just went over 1,100. Got to slip that other one down there below them. And make sure you get Rick's church up there with the 30,000. Not only that, they're Baptists. So give them the big B up there next to their name. You know, that's the one I like is them Baptists. Get it up there. 
And Northbrook, well, you can give them a B, although they don't always make it a big deal that they're Baptists, so maybe well, we'll give them a little B, you know, to only one loop, not the two loops, just the one little loop of Baptist. And God bless their souls. God is not impressed by the size of a church like we Americans are. As Americans, we judge our churches on the size and the amenities of their buildings and programs. It's like, it's like looking at a new apartment complex. What amenity, do you have a swimming pool? Do you have pickleball courts? You know, do, do I have laundry hookups in my apartment? Are they full-size or are they stacked? Because I really don't like those stacked ones. I want the full-size deal. And granite countertops, I gotta have granite countertops. There's a, there's a new set of apartments that are being built in the New Bowl area, and I was reading an article about them, and the rents are gonna range from $900 to $3,000 a month. And I thought of you, John. And I thought, how much house can you buy for $3,000 a month? But they're touting all of the wonderful amenities that they have. And they know that that's going to bring us in. And maybe one of you is buying an apartment in Newbo, or renting one in Nubo for $3,000. I want to be your friend, okay? So I can come hang out at your apartment. But... It, it's just like, we just are so sucked in. And is it going to make us happy? Am I going to be happy if I'm part of that church? If you watch TV commercials, they're all, and I've said this before, they're all smiling, they all have perfect white teeth. You would think that heaven came down and glory filled their souls for everything that they got there. That car, or they're at that party, or they're drinking that beverage, or they're eating this hors d'oeuvre, or whatever it is. It's, it's the end of all your satisfactions, all fulfilled in one thing. And that's how we have a tendency to judge churches. We've got to know what programs they have. And I'm not the first to say it, and I won't be the last to say it, but we have become so consumeristic in our search for the right church that has the best kids program and the best youth programs and the most amazing youth use of technology. That's what we want. It's in our little list of things to check off. I found it's more common today, people are more concerned with the type or the style of the music and the lighting of the area and the feeling it produces than they are actually the words that they're singing. I, I, I am so thankful to be the pastor of a place where the guy who is in charge of our music, I never have to worry about what he's going to do with the music. Because I know the most important thing to him is what the song says. I don't care about the style of the music, especially in comparison to what that song says. And I'm thankful 
that Scott is never going to get up here and try to manipulate my emotions to make me have an emotional experience. But he is going to seek to minister to me through the words of the song. I want you to know that we don't qualify the people who sing on our platform by how good their voices are. If you have a burden to be up here to sing and minister to people with your voice, we're going to say yes. And if your voice is horrible, we might turn off your mic. <laughs> but we want people to be able to minister with, with the gifts that God has given them. And if their heart is to minister through the music and the words of that music, I don't believe that the gifting is necessarily how good their voice is. The gifting is what the Holy Spirit has done in their heart to minister to others. If you haven't figured out yet, I'm not a pastor who's wrapped up in excellence. I am a pastor who is wrapped up in everyday people who love Jesus and want to use the gifting of the Holy Spirit to minister to other people wherever they are. Say, are you being critical of other churches? I am saying probably, but I am saying mostly this morning that Jesus loves small churches who just love each other and love neighbor and want to worship God. When it comes to the teaching of God's word, I know I'm old school and I know I'm on the verge of being a fossil. I'm not that far away from being out in somebody's rock bed and them going, oh, look, at, there's, a, there's a fossil of a preacher. You know, that's what they look like. And it's right there, it's in a rock. I know I'm not that far away from that. But I'm one of those old school guys who believes that the teaching of God's word, we should not adapt adopt a less is more mentality. Just give me 15 minutes. Tell me something good that I can put in my little pocket, my spiritual pocket, and take with me for the rest of the week. Just tell me what I should believe. Assert to me. I don't want you to go out into this world and say, my pastor said... I don't want that. Those are some of the worst words you could ever say. My pastor said. I want you to go out into this world and say, God said. If you want to say, my pastor helped me see that God has said, or Jesus has said, or this is what the Holy Spirit does or wants, I want you to do the hard work of thinking, and I want you to do the hard work of being in step with the Spirit and learning from the Word, which means that I don't do asserting. We have come to a place in our world where the length of the sermon is often more important than the content of the sermon. 
Just give me a little bit of Jesus, a lot of good feeling, and the amenities that surround it. And we wonder why the statistics about immorality in our churches and why the statistics about marriage in our churches and the statistics about a lack of interest in Jesus in our churches or the lack of time in God's word during the week in our churches. We wonder why it's so low. And I would argue it's because we have come to embrace the American culture in our churches. And we've come to despise the small things that God loves. God's intent for an evaluation of the church has been and is seems to be far from our cultural expectations. I say all these things this morning not because I feel defensive because I pastor a small church. I say these things this morning because I hear in Revelation 3 what Jesus loves. And I'm not a person who says all small churches are good churches any more than I say all big churches are bad churches. I want you to understand and I want me to understand that the success of Northbrook Baptist Church as one of God's instruments in the Cedar Rapids area is not dependent upon how many people sit in the seats. And are we worse off because we have less people than we had once before? I was talking to Ben Fuhrer yesterday, and I mentioned to him that the size has gone down over the last little bit, and, and I said, I think there's a lot of people who are wondering what's next. And he said, oh man, John, he said, it's been that way ever since I was there. He said, there were people coming in and there were people going out. And he said, I can go back to before Eric left and people were leaving. And then God was bringing in some other new ones and people were leaving and God was bringing in, he said, it's just always been that way. And he was basically telling me, Ben's a good friend, he was basically telling me, don't worry about how many are there. Just encourage him to do ministry with who's there. God's evaluation of the church is not on the things that we prize and value. He loves, Jesus loves and celebrates churches where the people celebrate his word, where the people seek to grow in obedience. Our Father wants us to realize that it is in and through our weakness that his power is displayed. I've been a pastor for 21 years and technically I've been in ministry since 1986. I can't even do the math on that anymore. Some kind of what we call ministry, Christian organization. 
I came to a college at Northland that when we first got there, there were 37 faculty staff, that many employees, and about 150 students. And I saw the school numerically grow and numerically grow and numerically grow. And I watched a culture decline and disappear and a philosophy that got buried till the school was around 1,000 and slowly went down while other schools became more popular and it went down and it went down and it went down and through bad decisions eventually closed. And my heart breaks because Northland was more than just a college. But the reality is it lost focus on why it existed probably 20 years before it ever closed. And I've seen so many churches have a heart for God and a heart for God's people and a heart for their community and lost it and either went on to be nothing, close, or go on to be something that was so far from what God intended his church to be. And my concern this morning is less about how many people sit in the seats and far more about are we a place that loves God's word? Are we a place that loves one another? Are we a place that goes out from here to love their neighbor? God and Jesus wants us to desire, they desire for us to recognize our need of the Holy Spirit's empowering for ministry instead of carefully crafted systems to accomplish our annual goals. If the day ever comes here where the discussion in an elders meeting would be, what's the percentage of increase we're gonna have for the next year? I will say I have, I have failed and resigned. When we begin to craft systems and programs to increase our numbers for whatever good, godly sounding reason we may have that we should do these things so more people come to know Christ, when we begin to craft programs and systems to, to create those numbers, I have failed in teaching this church. We are here to be faithful people who love God's word, who respond to God's word, and who proclaim God's word because we live God's word. And the growth of the kingdom is not dependent upon human talent or human abilities or human reasoning, the growth of God's kingdom happens when God's people acknowledge their need of the Holy Spirit in his gifting and his power to accomplish what is impossible in our own strength. Over the years, I've talked to many people outside of this region about the process of looking for a new church. 
I've consistently encouraged them. I can't tell you how many people I've had this chat with, but I have consistently encouraged them to find a small church where they can serve with the gifting of the Holy Spirit. I have said to them, don't look for the big snazzy church where you can go in and simply be ministered to and you can be anonymous and just show up week after week and be anonymous. Go find that small church and plug in with the gifting of the Holy Spirit and be a blessing to them. Guys who have their Master of Divinity who wanted to be a pastor and it didn't work out for them and they say, now what, I should, what should I do? I said, wherever you live in the surrounding areas, there are small churches in the rural areas. Go find those places and go to that pastor and say, whatever I can do to help you, I want to serve. And watch his face. I've encouraged them to come alongside the pastor to learn of his vision and encourage him and pray for him and serve with him. I've encouraged them to bless the people who have faithfully served in those small churches for many years. I've encouraged them to follow the model of Jesus, which is I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for money. That is not the American way of life. We have the idea that the church serves us. And I'm not getting what I want out of this church, so I'm going to go find another church. We are here to look around us and say, who today does God have me to bless? As I said to you a few years ago, when you leave that morning to attend the services of Northbrook, the gathering of Northbrook. I don't even like the word services. The gathering of Northbrook. Pray about who God wants you to minister to that day. Before you get out of your car, in your brain, pray that God would help you to identify who needs ministering to today. And if everybody, whatever the church is, if everybody's coming with the attitude of who, who's that one, then it's unlikely that anybody's going to get left out. But if we're all coming to get, waiting for somebody to talk to us, doing the game of watching and seeing if anybody's going to talk to me, you have adopted a mentality of, I have come to be served. That might be hard to hear this morning. But you have been called to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That means I don't wait to be served, I serve. And it means I don't care if I ever get reciprocation. It means I love and give to the point of my life. That is the calling that Jesus has laid on us as Christians. And I would say to you, if this morning you are concerned about the size of Northbrook, I hardly ever get comments about it. 
But when I come to this passage and Jesus is commending a small, weak church, I set aside all the notions that I had for talking about from Philadelphia and said, maybe Jesus wants us to talk about being a small, weak church this morning. And to stop living the past of what we once were, like Sardis, and start living in the presence of who can I minister to? And who can I give myself to? And who can I love, even if they never reciprocate? Our focus must not be on what we will get out of the service, but rather how our service will bless others and exalt Jesus regardless of whether or not it feels good or we gain nothing. Jesus, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, that Jesus has chosen what is weak in this world to shame the strong. He has chosen what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I know we're a church of introverts. My family, two-thirds of us, contribute introvert vibes to this church. You guys love Terry and you love Alyssa and I love that you love them. But they are dyed-in-the-wool, stereotypical poster introverts. And some people go, really? They're introverts? Beyond what you could ever imagine, they are introverts. But they look for somebody to serve. And that's what I want Northbrook to be. I want you to not only notice there's a new face, I'm talking to you introverts that I love dearly. You see a new face walk in and you go, ooh, there's a visitor. I don't know what to say. Let the extroverts do it. Go over to them and say hi. They won't bite. Hi. I'm glad you're here. Do you know anybody here? No. Okay. Um, And while you're thinking, now it's up to me to hold a conversation, say, why don't you come sit with our family? It saddens me, honestly. It's not judging of you or angry with you. It saddens me when somebody sits by themselves who's a visitor. Bring them into the family. Ask them about their spiritual journey. I know that you people love people. Love the stranger. I think it's good for us this morning to hear what Jesus' promise is to those who conquer, to this small, weak, vulnerable church. The one who is holy and true promises in verse 12 that he will make this small, weak, vulnerable church a pillar in the temple of my God. Remember, these people are the ones who live on the shaky ground. 
the ground that does this underneath of them? When the earthquake hit San Francisco, it actually, where the epicenter was just outside of San Jose, my dad was in a business meeting during that time in San Jose on the third floor of an office building. He said, when it hit, they had this massive oak table that could seat about 20 people. And he said, we were all sitting around it and the floor literally started doing this in that building. And he said, he said the table was just bouncing across the room. And those you know, glass pane windows in office buildings, he said they were bowing in and out. They weren't shattering, they were just going in and out. And he said it didn't last that long. And they all just sat looking at each other. They were all high level people. They were executives and things. And they were looking at each other and said, we got to get out of here. And they all ran down the stairs and ran out to the parking lot. And he said there were aftershocks hitting where the asphalt was just moving. And there were these massive gaps in the asphalt driveway. And he said our, our meeting had gone over or I would have been on the Oakland Bridge when it collapsed. That was the time I normally would have gone across. But I thought as I was reading about this city, living in this area of an earthquake and the volcanic activity, that that's what they lived with on a daily basis. They were on very shaky ground. And Jesus says to them, I am going to make you a pillar in God's temple. Powerful, stable, giving support to everything else. He says, you will never go out of it where they had no city to live in. He now says to them, you will never go out of it. You will reside there. And he said, I'm going to write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God of heaven, out of heaven, and my new name, Jesus. Jesus promises these weak, vulnerable children of God who live in a place where everything is out of whack and uncertain, that they will be strong, that they will provide stability. And it, in reality, is, a, is something that's already being accomplished in them at that point. He also promises that we will dwell in His presence forever something that we already possess that will be expo exponentially better when we see Him face to face. The power of the Spirit is in us. And for those who in the power of the Holy Spirit conquer, Jesus will celebrate with us our new identity. He's going to give us something that is better than a photo ID or a passport. Tiana's coming home in July. We had to get a photo ID for her so that she can get on a plane. But he's going to give us something better than a photo ID or a passport. He's going to write on us the name of God. He is going to write on us the name of our city. He's going to write on us his own new name. What Jesus is saying is that in every way, shape, and form, my identity is your identity. You're going to live in a safe, stable place 
You are going to share in my identity and you will never go out of it. You'll have no need of anything outside of it. It will be a final affirmation of our citizenship, our family name, and our unity in the body of Christ. Please don't go out of here this morning and say Pastor John was critical of big churches. Go out of here this morning and say Pastor John is critical of any church that is not faithfully being obedient to Jesus and who is not, who is ashamed to bear his name. Can we do better? Yeah. Which church do I think we, we can identify with best? Philadelphia. When I came, I would say we were more of an Ephesus. Where are we today? I think we've become more of a church of Philadelphia. Can we be better at it? Yes. We can be better at it. Can we love our neighbor? Yes. Can we love the stranger? Yes. Can we go forward to serve others and not be served in the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. And can we accomplish great things for God? Yeah. In a little, in a week, we're going to be baptizing two or three people. And to me, that's a small, weak church seeing the power of God in the midst of our presence. He has not left us. He is with us. He is doing good things in and through us. I want to encourage you this morning to faithfully serve our Savior for our Father's glory and others' good. I want to encourage you this morning to keep in step with the Spirit, seeking His power and gifting in your life to not only grow in Christ-likeness, but to bless others as you have been blessed by Jesus. And I want to encourage you this morning to be content in weakness. To be content in weakness. knowing that the power of God is on display in and through you. And if you have ears to hear in your weakness this morning, here's Paul's encouragement to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. May God bless us as we seek his power in our lives. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear. There is nothing of us that made you choose us to be your children. There was nothing in me, Father, that you sat back and said, oh, John can do this and this and this, and therefore I want him to be a pastor someday. Father, and I know that no one knows my weaknesses like you do. 
And you know how I feel about my weaknesses. You know I hate it. And you know the struggle that I have with you at times because you have brought weaknesses into me that I don't like and you have taken strengths from me that I did like. And yet you have brought to me today new strengths through the Holy Spirit that are unnatural to me. So Father, help me to be content. You know I need this sermon more than anyone else in this room. Help me to trust you. And Father, for these people, I pray that you would continue to grow them. You love them so much, and you know how much I love them. Help them to grow into the image of Christ. Help them to continue to do that. Thank you for all that you've done in so many lives in this body. Some who are not with us anymore. And I pray that you would find us faithful. Faithful to serving like Christ and faithful to the name of Christ. And I ask these things in your son's name. Amen.